So there's this line in Ephesians chapter 2 that we read last week that I've, it's just been on my mind. I've sort of been thinking about it and, and turning it over in my head. Uh, and, and here's the line. It says, you have been made alive. There we go. You, my finger's broken. I get, can I get a new battery for the, um, you have been made alive in Christ. We're going to read Ephesians 2 again in just a minute, but it starts with this kind of sobering comment that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And then Paul, the author, explains, explores that a little, but he says, but you have been made alive in Christ. So here's the question I've been asking myself. If, if this world is a life or death world and we can live maybe entirely in one camp, entirely in the other, or maybe we can even try to sort of straddle and live a little bit halfway in each the question I've been asking myself is, what does it mean to be fully alive? If, if God made us for life, if Christ gives us abundant life, if we have been made alive, what does that mean? What does that look like? And one of the reasons that I have been thinking about that is because as the, as the question came into my mind, I've suddenly noticed just how many different and various answers you can find to that question out there. I'm going, to go on a, I'm going to go on a little um, rock climbing rabbit trail here. Uh, maybe you saw the Netflix documentary of a number of years ago, a guy named Alex Honnold, who spent nine years of his life practicing one of the largest climbs in the world, El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, a 2,000-some-hundred-foot vertical granite wall. And Alex Honnold said, you know what I'm going to do with my life? You know how I'm going to be fully alive? I'm going to climb El Capitan without any ropes. Here he is, uh, I don't know, 1,500, 1,800 feet off the ground. Well, if you're like me, you think to yourself, like, I don't, fill in the blank. I don't know. I don't even have words for what you think. Yeah, why? Like, why? And Alex answers that question a lot. But then... Netflix came out with a new documentary. I really need to just quit with Netflix. That would give me a lot of extra time. But the new documentary is called The Alpinist, like alpine climbing, The Alpinist, about a a French-Canadian guy named Marc-Andre Leclerc. Now, Honnold took nine years, and he climbed El Cap, I don't know how many dozen times, with ropes, right? And he did it with ropes without falling, Many, many times. So he knew, he knew every move. He knew he could do it just fine, which doesn't make it make any more sense. But Leclerc, here's a little vocab lesson. Leclerc did something called an on-site mixed climb free solo. On-site meaning he would read about the climbs in advance but he would never once put a hand or a foot on the wall until he showed up to climb it. Mixed climbing, meaning it's both rock and ice climbing. So he's carrying his picks and his crampon, and he's literally in the middle of his climb, taking the ice things off his boots and changing out of his ice boots and changing into rock boots and doing that back and forth. In the middle of the wall... With no ropes, here's a picture of Leclerc. You can see his ice picks are on the rock, and his his boot 
things, I should have known the term for that, are in the ice. And I'm, so I watched this documentary, The Alpinist, and, and, and suddenly one of the characters in the movie, I don't remember his name, so I didn't put the name on there, but if you watch the documentary, you'll see it. And he's reflecting on both Honnold's work and Leclerc's work as free soloists. And this guy who's speaking, he's a climber too, and, and here's, here's what he has to say. He says, moving over the mountains unencumbered is about as close as you are going to get to sprouting wings and being totally free, absolutely awake, absolutely alive. That's an interesting perspective. <laughs> but it just struck me. For some people in the world, if they're asked the question, what does it mean to be fully alive? Their answer to that question is living right at the edge. I don't know if it's the adrenaline or the challenge, or I don't know what it is, but for, for some group of people in the world, the answer to the question, what does it mean to be fully alive, is answered by some sort of extreme. And as I had that idea in my head after watching this documentary, um, it also suddenly struck me, you see slightly milder versions, but still pretty strong statements of this all over the place. Um, I don't know if Instagram knows that I watched these documentaries, but recently on my Instagram feed, I've been seeing these videos of people doing all sorts of different crazy extreme sports, and I saw some nods. So you guys know, like, man, there's, there's, there's short clip after short clip of people going out there and just doing the most insane stuff. And then there's this song that it seems like half the time it's the, it's the track underneath, uh, and the song says... Uh, one day you'll leave this world behind, so live a life you will remember. And then you get these little pictures or videos of people, you know, bungee jumping, swings, hot air balloons, just all of this crazy stuff that people do as their answer to the question, what does it mean to live fully alive? I'll be honest, I'm, a, I'm sympathetic. I mean, I like being outdoors. I like taking risks and, and doing challenging things, but, but really nowhere near the level of some other people. And so I wonder, why is it that, that so many people seem to answer the question of the meaning, the purpose, the design of life with some form of risk, with some form of, of what many of us would call insanity? And maybe the more important question would be, if, that, if that's not if that answer isn't compelling to me, like if, that, if, if I'm not sure that's the right answer, well, what is? And so we're going to spend the next few minutes together trying to come up with a good answer to the question, what does it mean to be fully alive, by looking again at our text from Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, otherwise I'm going to read it again in full. Uh, the words will be on the screen. This is Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here's what Paul says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who, has now, who is now at work in those who are... Uh, I don't remember the next word... Um, Disobedient, thank you. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, handiwork, created in Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Would you pray with me again, God? We ask that as, as all of us in some way, shape, or form ask this question, what does it mean to be fully alive? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? What's the, just what's, the, what's the most essential things about life in this world? As we ask that question, first, help us to take it seriously. Because we know life is not something to be wasted, not something to be spent on the wrong things. And, and second, God, as, as we read your word, may we find the answer to the meaning and purpose of life by looking to you, the maker and the giver of life. Amen. So I've got three things I want to look at, because as I mentioned last week, three things is the divinely appointed number of things to look at on a Sunday morning sermon, apparently. Um, and the three things I want to look at are looking a little deeper at workmanship, good works, and preparation. One of, the, one of the most essential starting points to ask, answer the question of what does it mean to be fully alive is starting by just getting it a little deeper into our bones, not just into our head, but down into our hearts and through our hearts out into our lives, this reality that whatever else we make of our lives and how we live it, the starting point is that you are God's workmanship. If you look across all the different religions of the world, both some of the major monotheistic religions of the world as well as some of the minor, uh, oftentimes more tribal, or some of the ancient uh, religions with, with many different gods, one of the things that many, many different religions do is they seek ways to define or categorize who their god is. Uh, I was thinking about one passage in another one of the Apostle Paul's writings where there's this silversmith, a guy named Demetrius, and he was making statues of the god Artemis. And when suddenly Paul caused a little bit of an uproar in the city and people stopped buying statues that Demetrius was making, it caused a big problem both for his livelihood, but both because his understanding of who the god is was wrapped up in this image in this idol, in this representation of God. We see gods defined as the gods of various parts of life. There's the god of fertility, or the god of war, or the god of the forests, or the god of the animals. Different religions like to define who their gods are 
in relation to all sorts of things we see in the world. The Christian scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, define God in what is a pretty radical way compared to other religions in the world. And they say, God is not the God of some part of creation. God is not the God who can be represented with some sort of image made by a human as though the human hands are somehow greater than the God, but rather, Scripture defines God as the creator. And not just the creator of some of it, or a part of it, or a piece of it, but the creator of all of it. And so, when I think about that, I honestly come back to these people who answer the question of the meaning of life by seeking outdoor extremes with a little bit more sympathy because, in a sense, if we are all creatures of the Creator, and, in fact, the Creator didn't just make us, the Creator made all of creation, then it is natural to seek a connection with our Creator in the creation. One way you could say it is that God's creatures connect with their Creator while in their Creator's creation. But whether or not getting out in nature or standing on the top of a 14er or being out on a hike is deeply meaningful to you, the underlying principle is that if we're going to answer the question of what does it mean to be fully alive, we have to answer it by looking not only into ourselves or into our desires, but looking also at the source of all that we desire, desire in this world. It matters so much. The source we look to when we're trying to find answers to these big questions. Which brings us to the second part of uh, this exploration. It says that uh, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We said last week, um, oftentimes we like to find our worth in our work. But that kind of gets it backwards. Because while we were created to do good works, we were not created to find our worth in our work. Rather, we were created so that our good works express the worth we already have because we were made by God. Another way to just observe this reality that we were created to do good works is to say it this way. God made you for and with a purpose. God didn't make you simply as an accident or simply as an experiment to toss off to the side and be like, well, oh, that was neat. Let's try another one. Oh, that was neat. Let's try another one. No, no, no. You were made with a purpose. And it looks like I already said that we don't find our worth in our work, but our work expresses our worth, which for me suddenly makes me ask this question. Okay, if I'm made with a purpose, and that purpose is somehow in this pretty big category, good works, I looked up the Greek just to check it out. The Greek says, good works. It's pretty much, there's really nothing else to get in there. Um, it's, a, it's a big, broad term that obviously can encompass all sorts of things. So I find myself asking, what are my good works? What are those works I'm supposed to do? Now, this is the part where it'd be really nice if I could just say, and as a matter of fact, I know. So just meet me after the service, and I'll just kind of tell you, each of you, I'll just kind of write it down on a little tablet. Or Maybe it'd be really nice if I could be like, okay, here's the prayer. You just pray this prayer, and after you pray this prayer, God will give you the answer. It'll be a list, 
It'll probably be time-stamped, you know, on this date, at this time, during this year. They're supposed to do that, but during that year. I mean, that could be nice. It, it could also be a little bit high pressure. I don't know. If I had the list, it might feel a little bit high pressure. Uh, but I want to try to explore the answer to this question in a slightly different way. Um, the first thing to recognize in answering the question, what are my good works, is to answer it this way. Um, whatever they are, whatever those good works are, they are uniquely yours. Think of it this way. If we're exploring this theme, God's the artist, he's the poet, he's the creator, he's the craftsman who makes all sorts of different works, and he makes each one for a purpose. Now, I mentioned last week that David, he makes guitars. Here's one of them. David, I'm going to use your guitar. Now, A, when handling another creator's creation, be careful. Now, this is a piece of woodwork. This is an, an incredible piece of woodwork. I'm, I'm suddenly a little more self-conscious than I was going into this. Um, if I wanted... See, I'm, I'm not a guitar player. I learned a few chords, uh, and I probably could still pull them off. But you know what I do really well with pieces of wood that are shaped sometimes like this. Um, I do a lot of paddling. And if I really wanted, I could take this, it's got the right shape, and I could paddle a canoe with this guitar. If I needed to turn the boat, just put it in there, give it a little rudder. I mean, it's got a nice big surface area. This would work really adequately as a guitar paddle until I got to the rocky part of the rapids and I ran it into the the rocks but I mean you know I could take this piece of workmanship and I could use it I'm gonna put it down now we're gonna go ahead and nice and easy 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 similarly I could take my guitar paddle and if I really wanted I could put a string on it It could work, right? I could, I mean, but I think we all agree that trying to take a guitar and use it as a canoe paddle, or trying to take a canoe paddle and use it as a guitar is, is, a, is a pretty great affront to the intentions of the creator. As I've been thinking about this idea of sort of abusing a, a creation and, and trying to use it for a different purpose. It struck me that, you know, a lot of us actually spend time doing this very thing in our lives. Have you ever had somebody that you looked up to, maybe you looked up to too much and you idolized them, whose life you thought, man, I'd really life, like my life to be like theirs? And obviously there's good to that. It's good to be inspired. It's good to be challenged. It's good to try to live in a more good way. But the underside is when we spend too much time comparing our lives to others, we spend all this energy trying to become like them instead of trying to become like ourselves. There's this great quote in jazz music often attributed to Miles Davis. It takes a long time to learn to play like yourself. So what does it mean that God prepared you in advance to do good works? 
Well, one of the things it means is that when God made you, he didn't make a copy. He didn't say, you know what, I did a really good job with that one. I'm going to try it again. Oh, it was a little off, but you know, maybe they'll get close. No, no, no. Whatever God made you to do, he made you to do that thing. Here's a little thought experiment. Christian theology has uh, affirmed for, you know, since the beginning that our God is infinite, you know, and we do all sorts of like thought experiments to try to capture and understand what infinite really means, but, but whatever it is, God is outside, he's beyond, he's far greater than our finite experience and understanding of the world. And God, the infinite God, when he created humans, he made us in his image and likeness. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we are also infinite in the way he is, but here's what I observe. Everything about God's creation, from top to bottom, front to back, everything reflects a great diversity. You might even say that this creation echoes a nearly infinite diversity. So you could say it this way. The infinite diversity of humans or of all creation expresses the infinite nature of their creator. So if we're made by God to do good works, whatever the details and the specifics of those works are, they should be works that reflect the uniqueness and the difference and the diversity that God gave each of us. Because every single different expression that each of our lives makes is a critical expression reflecting the infinity, the infinite nature of our good creator. And then the last way I'll answer this question of what does it mean to live fully alive and and as part of that, what are the good works I'm supposed to do, um, comes in the last little part of this um, verse 10 in the scripture. It says, for we are God's workmanship, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Probably my biggest, uh, I guess, critique of the thrill-seeking, adventure-seeking answer to the purpose of life is that as far as I can understand it, and, and maybe somebody who lived more in this world, you know, if I had Alex Honnold up here with me, he might push back, and that's so why I want to be fair to that, but as far as I can tell, there's a vein in it that really focuses only on me figuring out what I want and who I am, and as soon as I figure that out, who am I, what do I want? Then I do it, and then that's it. As long as I'm doing what I want to do, then I have completed it. And I, I, I've sort of said that. I said, we're each made individually, so we should know who we are. We should figure out the desires God put in us. That's good things. But that can't be the end of the story. I would say that Scripture points to a much bigger story than simply who am I and what am I. But rather, Scripture points to a story that says who God made me to be uniquely, individually, which I should know and celebrate, who God made me to be is part of a greater work that God is doing with all of creation. And so it's critical to see who I am, not just as the end of the whole story, but as part of something much bigger. And God made us to play a part in that story. So I'm going to say something that's a little, a little strange, but as we figure out 
who, who did God made me, make me? Did he make me more like a canoe paddle, more like a guitar, more like a hammer, more like a nail? I don't know if anybody wants I'm the, I'm the nail. Just that's what, maybe not. Um, the thing to recognize is that the works were made to do, God prepared you to do the works you are prepared to do. And th- that sounds a little self-evident. It's like, well, obviously, Carl, that's... But here's what I mean for that. Um, I know that often, when I'm at a place where I go, you know what, this seems to be part of my passion. This seems to be part of my design. When I'm at a place where I go, I see an opportunity in front of me to do a good work, and I think God has put me in this place. I think God has given me the, the ability and the expertise and the whatever it is to do this good work. It's very common for the next thing in my heart to be, ooh, but I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm able. I don't know if I have what it takes to do this thing that's in front of me. And so sometimes we can get hyper-focused on, well, what's the work, and what should I do, and what shouldn't I do, and what's the right thing, and what's the wrong thing, and maybe I want that list. But instead, the opportunity, maybe the freedom is to say, well, whatever it is, when you see it, know this. It's what God has created you. He has prepared you exactly to do. It's the fact that God is the one preparing you that should be a major note in this chord we're trying to play with our life. As an illustration, um, I mentioned last week, in my house, uh, the soundtrack from the movie Encanto has been playing nearly nonstop. Disney's new, um, Disney's new uh, animated film, fantastic film. Uh, the words of all the songs were written by uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the author of Hamilton. So not surprisingly, the lyrics are just excellent, and they get stuck in your head forever. And when your kids play the songs on repeat, they get stuck even deeper so that you dream. I'm not kidding. In the middle of the night, you're dreaming lyrics from the movie Encanto. Well, I, I start, you know, I was like, okay, this is interesting. You know, Miranda wrote the, the lyrics and, and I like geeking out on this stuff. So I start reading a little bit and I read this interview that Miranda gave and he was talking about part of the creative development process for the movie. And if you've seen the movie, you know, and, and if you haven't, this isn't a spoiler, um, the, the main characters of the movie are one family. And that single family, which is kind of the, all the main characters, have 12 different people in the family. And so in its design, the movie, in a sense, has 12 main characters. A couple of them are a little more main than the other, but according to Miranda, it's really designed so that that's a lot. I mean, that's, it's a big family. It's set in Colombia, so big families are, are common there, and it represents that culture. But when Disney got the proposal for a, a major motion picture with 12 main characters, they were like, no, you can't do that. Four is the biggest number. You can have up to two good guy main characters and two bad guy main characters, and that's it. Everybody else has to be a supporting character, otherwise the audience get, gets confused. To which we're like, come on, Disney. Give us, you know, cut us some slack. Well, Miranda and some of the other creative team really pushed back on this and said, no, 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 I think we need to do it. And so when you watch the movie, you'll see there are a lot of different people who really do play a major role 
in the story. And the way the whole plot plays out is that it's kind of a story of each different character individually going through the work of figuring out who are they and what are they supposed to do with their lives. And I just kind of liked, as I was reading that, that story and that interview, I really liked this idea of Lin-Manuel saying, no, 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 I think there can be more main characters than just the smallest possible number. And this is what it made me realize. I think often we're tempted to look at the world around us and divide people kind of into a main character, supporting character kind of role. It's like, oh, well, you know, um, Bill Gates, right, wrong, good, bad, he's a, he's a main character because obviously he did something really big. He's got a lot of money. He's got the foundation. Like, Whatever it is, he's a main character. Uh, uh, you know, political leaders of major nations around the world, they obviously have a lot of power, influence. So, so those are main characters. But, you know, my life, like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing one small thing in one little place. We like to define main character versus supporting role based on how big of a splash they make in the world around us. But if we take seriously that our worth is not based on our work, but our worth is based on the power and the skill of our maker, then what that suggests is that every human, with the specific good works they're meant to do, regardless of whether they make a big splash according to this world or if they seem insignificant to this world, every single person has good works of equal value because they've been given to them by the same creator. We said that this, this noun, workmanship or handiwork, comes from poema, like poetry. We said, you know, what would it look like to live your life as divine poetry? Well, I guess you could say it this way. In the, in the epic poetry, this divine poetry of God's creation, he only made main characters. Characters whose good works he has prepared and that he The creator of all the universe is the one who prepared us to do those good works. It's not up to us to decide whether they're good enough or not. It's us to decide whether or not we're going to define the purpose of our life based on something we see in the world around us or based on who God made us to be. Which brings us, as always, to the critical part. What are we going to do with this? What am I going to do? Every, every week we come in here, we gather, we read some scripture, we think about it, we talk of it, and then we go and we spend the majority of our life not in this room, not in this place. We take one hour out of the week that we hope and pray would make some sort of a difference in all of the other hours of our week. Make a difference in our homes, make a difference in our jobs, make a difference in our friendships, make a difference internally, make a difference in our relationships. So I'm going to suggest three things that I hope would help us to, like we said last week, live our lives as divine poetry. Or like we say this week, live our lives to do the good works God prepared us to do so that we really might live a fully alive life. First, be honest. And yeah, if you click it again, the next one will show up. There we go. Be honest. Honest, I think, if we're honest, a lot of us spend far too much time trying to pretend we're something we're not, trying to fit into a mold 
that just doesn't sit right with who we are, or trying to take who we know we are and cover it up, lie about it, or hide it for any number of complicated reasons. I think one of the ways to really celebrate that we are God's creation and to prepare ourselves to do the works God prepared us to do is by just being ruthlessly honest. I do this often by journaling. I think journaling is an awesome way to just stop and say, okay, nobody else is going to see this. If I need to, I'll rip up the page and burn it afterwards. But I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say exactly what I think and what I feel, if nowhere else, at least on this page. And if you can, I hope and pray you have at least that one other person. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a trusted friend. But at least that one other person with whom you can say, you know what? Here's what's really going on in my life. Honesty is a powerful and critical way to figure out and all the more live the life that God has prepared you to live. Second thing, get outside. And and we live in Colorado, so we like to do this anyway, but don't take lightly the fact that the God who made you is the God who made those mountains as well. And there is an inherent connection, and I'm guessing all of us have felt it in some way, when we get out of human-created places, which can have their own good and beauty, but when we get out into pristine, untouched parts of the world that are there only because our God made them, it is natural for us to connect with and hear more clearly from our Creator while we're in His creation. Third, certainly not least, Remember your preparation. As you figure out who you are, who God made you to be, how God made you to live, as maybe it becomes clear what the good works are in front of you that God might be prompting you to do, not with sort of a pressure to be like, oh, I better figure it out, but with a freedom to say, what are the gifts God's given me? Who am I? Well, that's the good God made me to do. Whatever it is that he put in my heart, if it's good and right according to Scripture, that's what God made me to do. Remember this. Whether or not you feel ready to do that, God is the one who has prepared you to do the works he called you to do. I have a memory etched in my brain of, uh, I was part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in college. And there was a guy, another student, who gave a talk one night, and, and for some reason, it's just one of those moments, you know, one of those talks that uh, it really just grabbed my attention. It stood out in my brain, and He was talking about this idea that um, God calls us and God prepares us and God has a work for us to do. And he was really leaning into this idea of how often we feel a sense of inadequacy. Oh, I couldn't possibly be good enough. I couldn't possibly be ready. I couldn't possibly go there. That often when God calls us and and we, for whatever reason, in conversation with a friend, in reading scripture, in honesty with ourselves, we go, whoa, maybe this is what God called me to do. It's just so common to follow that up with, ooh, but am I really ready? And here's the line that this fellow student of mine said. I don't know where he got it, but he said, God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. As we're figuring out how God made us, who God made us to be, what God made us to do, we can know this. Whether or not we feel ready is not the big question. (laughs) The big question is whether or not we believe this is what God has made us and prepared us to do. So you could think of it this way. On this journey of living our lives is divine poetry. 
as God's workmanship, made by the creator of the universe, an infinite God, to reflect him and to join him in his good work in the world. And as we do the hard work of saying, God, who am I? Who'd you make me to be? And what's the good work you put in front of me to do? And as we do that and we start going, oh boy, I'm pretty comfortable in my life. I I feel pretty settled. I'd like to just stay in my safe little familiar box, but God calls us out into the new things. Remember this. God has already prepared you. Go to the last slide. God has already prepared you to be you, whether or not you feel prepared to do so. Would you guys pray with me? God, I I acknowledge, like we've said the last few weeks, there's so many voices in this world that are trying to tell us who we are, how we should live, what we should do, what our lives should look like or shouldn't look like. It just feels like chaos how many voices there are. It's easy to get confused or overwhelmed. God, I ask that in this moment where we have sang songs to worship you, our good, our powerful God, where we have prayed together seeking to hear from you, may every one of us, even if it's just the gentlest of whisper, hear a little more clearly exactly who you made us to be. And would you give us the courage to step into those good works that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Amen.